so what is freedom and do you have it? Like right now, today, are you free? Do you have whatever the creed of our country means when it says liberty for all? I don't know what your answer to that question is, if you are free or if you feel free or whatever you think freedom is. But I do know that you have a very deep, very good, completely God-given desire to be free. Nobody wants to be bound. That's part of what being made in God's image includes for you. And speaking of God and His image, God is totally free. He's the most free being in the universe. He does not have any limits. There's nothing imposed upon Him from the outside. Nobody tells God what to do. Yet you would be wrong if you said God can do anything. He does have happy, healthy parameters. And every single restraint on God is in perfect and happy concert with the excellencies of His character. There are things God cannot do, like Hebrews 6, verse 18. It is impossible for God to lie. Well, does that mean that God is bound by something that's undesirable? No. That does not mean that God is limited by His inability to be honest. Rather, it means that He is in complete compliance with what would make Him exuberantly happy. God being incapable of doing a thing that would make Him unhappy means that He is free. His limits are actually His true freedom. And you want that. That's what I mean when I say you want to be free. I could just as easily and maybe more accurately say you want to be happy. The problem is you and I think we know what would give us that. You want to be able to do whatever you want. You want to be able to do it when you want to, where you want to, however long you want to, and for whatever purpose that you want to. The problem, though, is that left to yourself and your own devices, your life has been one grand expose that you will routinely settle for what will not make you happy. To quote C.S. Lewis, you are far too easily pleased. Temptations are not too big. Your desires are too small. Your sin nature lies to you about what would make you happy. Unlike God... If you and I were to act consistently with our own nature, if we were to follow our heart, do what feels good, we would fall into sin, and after the instant gratification that sin promised us, we would immediately on the other side of it become more miserable for our indulgence in it than we were before we partook of it. So to be free, you do not need to indulge yourself. You do not need to be true to yourself, 
Rather, if you want to be free, I love you enough to tell you what Jesus said. You must deny yourself out of preference for Christ and in obedience to Him. Now look, this whole matter of freedom is not a new challenge. Every generation tries to throw off the shackles of the previous generation. We're going to do it better. So if you were born between 1901 and 1924, and there's not many of those people alive, you would have been part of the greatest generation. The stereotype of those people were they, they were responsible and hardworking. But then the next generation, one of the most populous of the American history, 1946 to 1964, that's the baby boomers, and there are some of those among us, their stereotype was that they were selfish. They threw off the shackles of the greatest generation, but then quickly came from 1965 to 1980, that's my tribe, Gen X. And our stereotype is that we're cynical and disaffected. I'm not gonna let what you do bother me. Then quickly came the millennials from 1981 to 1996, and their stereotype is that they're entitled and lazy. This all came from the University of California at Berkeley, so don't blame me for the stereotypes. Gen Z from 1997 to 2012, there's a bunch of those in this room right now. You're very civic-minded. You're going to fix all the problems. And then Gen Alpha, so-called 2013 until today, that'll go through 2025. We're yet to see what their stereotype is going to prove to be. But why the stereotype? Why is everyone different than the previous? Because every generation, including every individual in it, is trying to prove the rule, I see what you did didn't work, I'm going to do it differently because I want to be free. Those generational cycles are an expose of the human search for liberty. Isn't it interesting that all the nonconformists look alike? So people who don't want to fit in with whatever the cultural norm is, tend to look the same. Their search for freedom actually binds them into another group. Isn't that ironic? Nonconformists want anarchy. Sexually confused people want immorality. Young children want freedom from all the rules. Adults want freedom from financial duress. The imprisoned want to be unshackled. Down to the personal, individual level, most of us are incessantly tempted to believe the lie that the grass is always greener on the other side. If my circumstances were different, then I would be more happy. You know this is true. I know this is true. You know that I know that this is true, and I know that you know that this is true. And today's passage teaches us this beautiful promise of how we can have true freedom no matter what situation we're in. No matter what our station of life, our age of life, no matter who our parents, country, culture, customs, generation, it does not matter. If you want freedom, you can have it. Our verses are about slaves and masters being born a servant to others against even our own will, even under subjugation, that is not an impediment to true freedom. Believing the lie that you can just get away, if you can just get away, then you'll be free. Get away from your parents, get another job, fly to the far corners of the earth, then you're going to be happy. The problem is the common denominator is going with you. It's you. 
Today's passage wants you to know something. God wants us to know something. Not only here, but deep in the fiber of our life and experience. Right here, right now, you can be free. Even if you are literally, physically a slave, you can be free. The Bible's counterintuitive answer for how to be free is not to divest yourself of all the masters, get rid of all the rules, rather to be free, to spread your wings and fly, to love your life. You just have to have the right master. So today I didn't come primarily to ask if you're free. I mainly came to ask, who is your master? The passage is 1 Timothy chapter 6. It's only two verses long. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. Open your soul as wide as you can to listen to these words. All who are under the yoke as slaves are to regard their own masters as worthy of honor so that the name of God and our doctrine will not be spoken against. Those who have believers as their masters must not be disrespectful to them because they are brethren, but must serve them all the more because those who partake of the benefit are believers and beloved. Teach and preach these principles. This is God's word. We need his help to believe and obey it. Let's pray together. Father, would you grant us true liberty, 2 Corinthians 3.18, freedom. 2 Corinthians 3.17, liberty that comes from the Lordship of the Holy Spirit in our life. And we ask this boldly in Jesus' name. Amen. Two verses, they fall nicely into two parts. Verse 1, believing Christian, believing slaves of unbelieving masters. And verse 2, believing slaves of believing masters. Believers who are slaves of unbelievers, believers who are slaves of believers. Verse 1, verse 2. Over here, regard them worthy of honor. You mean my non-Christian master? Yes. Why? Because God's name and the gospel are at stake. Over here, if you're a Christian slave and you have a Christian master, do not be disrespectful to them. Why? Because they're your sibling, your brother or sister in the faith. Because the people who benefit are actually children of God, and those who benefit from your service, they're actually loved by God. The two parts are believing slaves of unbelieving masters and believing slaves of believing masters. And then the passage concludes with two commands. Keep telling the church this. They're imperatives. It is a command. Preach and teach these things. That's the end of verse 2. So in short, there's one question in verses 1 and 2. Is your master lost or saved? That's the question. Then there's something like a flow chart. Okay, so if he's lost, make sure your conduct upholds the name of God and the gospel of Christ. 
if he's saved, make sure your conduct benefits him as much, not as little as possible. Do as much as you can to benefit him or her. Do not take advantage of him or her because God is their master too, just like yours. There's an underlying assumption in the passage. I've said it twice. It's that the slaves themselves are Christians. Not all slaves are Christians, but the ones in these verses are assumed to be. Now, this sermon may get me canceled by the internet police. This passage makes it clear that it is possible for slaveholders to be Christians. Not all of them are. Just like not all slaves are Christians. But it is a fact, according to these words in this passage, that some of them certainly are. So before we dive into Christian slaves of unbelieving masters and Christian slaves of Christian masters, let's just try to get our mind and heart around slavery in the Bible. First thing I want you to think about is the church at Ephesus where Timothy was pastoring when he got this letter written from Paul, but by God. The first thing I want you to think about is something so basic that it's easy to miss. That is, for these two verses to exist, what must have been the case in this church? Answer, some, maybe a bunch, of the people that got saved in the city of Ephesus and joined the church at Ephesus were slaves. Now imagine that as best you can in your mind's eye. Now imagine this, sitting beside them, behind them, in front of them, near them, across the room from them, were other members of the church who were their masters. We've talked about there must have been a bunch of widows in the church, so sisters whose husbands had died. Think how sad that is. Now imagine that beside the widows and in between them, there are slaves and masters. That's the makeup of the church at Ephesus. So before we dive into the first point, the instructions to the believers of unbelieving masters and believers of believing masters, I want to just try to give as accurate a portrait concerning slavery as I can, that, that Paul had in mind in these verses. Now, there's so much in Scripture about the human relationship of slavery, not just the spiritual relationship. We would be here until this time tomorrow if we just wanted to halfway look at all the verses. Paul had in mind something that was ubiquitous in the first century. That means it was everywhere. According to one sociological study that I read this week, there are estimated today, today, to be 45 million slaves in the world. And that is probably comparable to the number of slaves that existed, quote, in the Roman Empire in the first century just as many today as there was then. So if you think slavery's gone, one, you're wrong. But just in the first century world, for there to be that many means it's ubiquitous everywhere. This study suggesting that there were likely over 40 million slaves in the first century world, just to put that in your mind's eye, that's the entire population of the state of California 
or, or a little bit closer to home, that's the entire population of the state of Tennessee, Mississippi, and Arkansas, where the people in this room have come from, times three. Slavery was onerous and undesirable, one commentary said, but it was universal across the Roman Empire, indeed across most civilizations until fairly recent times. There's not a country in the world that has not had slavery in its history. In his book, The Real History of Slavery, Thomas Sowell wrote, in hierarchical societies like that of Ephesus, where most people were born into their predetermined niches in the social complex, slaves were simply at the bottom of a long continuum of varying levels of subordination based on your birth. But to be clear, the slavery we're seeing in Scripture here in these two verses and so many others was not like the ethnically based ethnically based slavery of the transatlantic trade that existed in the earliest centuries of this country it was not that it was slavery it was certainly more than systems that i also think are anti-gospel like the caste systems of india and in many ways even the class systems of our own country Slavery was everywhere, but it wasn't what you might think of if you're just thinking of modern America's history. The book of Romans, written to a church in Rome, was sent to the capital city of that empire, Rome, capital of Italy. When that book was written, it is estimated by sociologists there were 800,000 people who lived in slavery at the time that book was written. That's more than the total population of Memphis. Instead of calling for the immediate eradication of slavery, throw it off, revolt, do away with it, Paul commandeered slavery to explain that all of us, as Pastor Matt said earlier, is a slave, either of sin or of God. That's how he wrote in the book of Romans. Jesus referred to slavery in his teaching many times. Matthew 10, a slave is not above his master. Matthew 18, Jesus actually spoke favorably about a slave master's compassion and graciousness. He healed a centurion slave. He miraculously restored the ear of Malchus that Peter sliced off in the Garden of Gethsemane. And Malchus was, oh, by the way, the high priest's slave. Jesus taught that if you want to be first in his eyes, doesn't matter what anybody else thinks about you at the end of the day, it matters what he thinks about you. And if you want to be high in his eyes, you must become the slave of all. Matthew 20, verse 27. Jesus even compared his own self to being a slave master. Matthew 24, 50. And time and again, he is called a slave. The core truth of Christianity is this. Jesus became a slave. The king of the universe, the potentate of time. He's the despot. That's the Greek root for the word master. He's the master. He always has been. He ever will be. But the truth of Christianity is the astounding truth. I mean, should take your breath away, cause your heart to skip a beat. It should stagger you like somebody who is punched unsuspectingly 
Isaiah 42.1, he is the servant of the Lord. The word for servant, Hebrew word, Ibed, it's used 800 times perfectly. 800 in the Old Testament. 710 of those 800 times, it is either translated slave or servant. Jesus is a slave for us. He became a servant, Romans 15, 8, to the circumcision. That's the Jewish people. Why did he do it? So that the nations would glorify God for his mercy. If you don't want to be a slave, I can tell you somebody you're not going to be able to get very close to. His name is Jesus. It's vitally important to remember that where uh, where the next two verses I'm going to read were written from. They were written from a prison cell by a man who was shackled to the wall. The man is Paul. He was a prisoner for preaching the gospel. And while he was in that prison cell, he wrote this sentence. Slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh with fear and trembling in the sincerity of your heart as to Christ, not by way of eye service as man-pleasers, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart with good will render service as to the Lord, not to men, knowing that whatever good thing each one does, he will receive back from the Lord, whether slave or free. And masters, do the same things to them. Give up threatening, knowing that both their master and yours is in heaven and there is no partiality with God. He wrote this sentence from a prison cell. He rolled up this scroll and handed it to the same courier who delivered Ephesians. This comes from Colossians. Slaves, in all things, obey those who are your masters on earth, not with external service as those who merely please men, but with sincerity in your heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. For he who does wrong will receive the consequences of the wrong he has done, and that without partiality, masters grant to your slaves justice and fairness, knowing that you too have a master in heaven. Peter watched the greatest slave of all, the greatest servant of all, for three and a half years, and about 30 years later, he wrote a book. And in that book, Peter wrote, Servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. Is that sentence in the Bible? Yes. Why should we do that? Because this finds favor if for the sake of conscience toward God, a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. For what credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience, but if when you do what is right and suffer for it and you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. We'd be here all day long, as I said, if we just wanted to do a quick survey. I mean, Israel was enslaved for 400 years. If we just wanted to do a quick survey, we would be here until at least this time tomorrow. It's also clear that while slavery is all over the Bible, Old and New Testament, 
And Jesus did not speak about eradicating that social system, but rather heart transformation, work from the inside out, slow growth, his kingdom leavening the world, one life at a time. We can also say from Scripture, slavery is not virtuous. We should not perpetuate the system. We also should not, because there's a lot of verses about slaves honoring masters, have a martyr complex and hope to become one. In fact, the Scripture is clear that if possible, 1 Corinthians 7.21, slaves should seek to be released from that situation if they are able to do so. But even while the scripture would say, if it's possible to be released from that condition, you should do it. 1 Corinthians 7, 21. I need to conclude my opening remarks about biblical vision of slavery with a reminder that an entire book of the New Testament was written to a slave master, Philemon, whose slave ran away, Onesimus. And in God's remarkable sovereignty, Onesimus met the Apostle Paul, who was in jail, became a Christian. Paul wrote a letter to his master, Philemon, and sent it with Onesimus back and said, receive him back and charge any debt that he's accrued to my account, not to his, but receive him not only as a slave, but also as a brother. He sent him back. Yes, it's difficult to understand, at least for me, I'll admit it's very difficult to understand why the biblical authors and Jesus himself did not demand that human slavery end immediately. Instead, the scriptures consistently call for Christians to honor God within their current sphere of life, however long that may last. So many people wanted Jesus to change every political thing. They thought, many thought he was a political warrior, he was coming to set up some kind of expression of what they thought the kingdom of God was like, he did set up the kingdom of God. He is the king of the kingdom. But Paul's immediate goal in ministry, according to the Pillar New Testament commentary, was not revolutionary change of the social order. It was preaching and teaching the gospel for the sake of establishing enclaves of Christians in every sector of society. We need more Christian businessmen, more Christian businesswomen. We need more moms who love Jesus and more students who love Jesus. We need more slaves who are loving Jesus with the 40 million of them in the world today. Because in every sector of society, Jesus is building his church. And he put you where you are because he intends to use you where you are to reach people that nobody but you can reach. I do believe we have warrant in scripture for purposefully, intentionally, prayerfully, but oftentimes slowly working to eradicate human slavery. One reason I believe that is because there's biblical precedent for every other human structural relationship, not for slavery. Why should one man and one woman be monogamously married so long as they both live? The Bible roots that in the book of Genesis. Why should children always, no matter where you're born, what year you're born, wherever you live, why should you always honor your parents? Because that's rooted, according to the Bible, in the fifth commandment. We just put it on the screen. 
Slavery doesn't have any grounding like that. Why didn't God just send a new Moses into the first century world to lead his people who were under servitude into freedom? Doesn't God care about his kids who are, verse 1, under the yoke of slavery? The good news is that God did send a greater Moses. And he has led God's people out of the worst bondage of all. In Luke 9.31, on the Mount of Transfiguration, when the glory of Jesus was unveiled and people who were on that mountain could not mistake that he is God in the flesh, when they saw his countenance shine, quote, brighter than the sun, Moses and Elijah showed up, and Moses and Elijah were talking to Jesus about, quote, the departure that Jesus would accomplish at Jerusalem. The word departure in the Greek is exodus, the exodus that Jesus would accomplish at Jerusalem. What did he do at Jerusalem? He died on the cross for our sins. He set us free from the real slavery. So, believing slaves of unbelieving masters and believing slaves of believing masters. Those are two points. First, slaves of unbelieving masters. Verse 1, all who are under the yoke of slaves are to regard their own masters as worthy of all honor so that the name of God and our doctrine will not be spoken against. Unbelieving masters had to be especially harsh. Most of them may have been in Paul's mind when he wrote chapter 1. And he called them kidnappers. And he said, leaning back to a reference from Exodus 21, 16, they should be put to death. Anybody who's a man-stealer, anybody who creates tyranny and oppression for another human being, any husband who does that to a wife, any employer who does that to an employee, any master who does that to a slave, if you are a person who creates tyranny and oppression, God believes that you will be mercilessly judged by God. 1 Timothy 5, 24 and 25, the last two verses of last week's sermon. Yet even beneath unjust practices and systems, even beneath the sinful actions of unbelievers, other humans, in that situation, if you're under their influence, through that situation, during that situation, Right then, right there, we find the shocking application of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Right then, right there, not when it ends, there's freedom. It's at least available. If you have an unbelieving master, this verse, verse 1, you can look at it for yourself, says, that's all the more reason to show him, quote, all honor. And to show him by your conduct that Jesus is truly wonderful. This is a super difficult command. Talked to a bunch of people this week about how hard I feel like this passage is. My son said, what are you going to do with these verses? You know what verse 1 is? I said to, it's a call to show how truly wonderful Jesus is. It's a call to evangelize your slave master. It's a call, not just by your life. You can't preach the gospel so well by how you live that you don't have to use words. But if you claim to be a Christian and you're a slave, your conduct should corroborate your testimony. 
Live in such a way that your master cannot discredit your testimony about being one of God's children. Can you imagine being the slave in this verse? If you can, then you should also be able to understand that the slave actually becomes the free man, while the master is the one who's bound. The slave is called upon by God to use his undesirable position of unwilling servitude to seek the salvation of his despot. That's the word, his master. One commentary that had 12 pages on these two verses said, Paul is using conventional honor and shame language in a manner subversive of the system itself. What does that mean? In other words, Paul is, quote, reversing the roles of slaves and masters, speaking of slaves as the benefactors. They're the one giving. And they're giving the best of all, God. To put it another way, they take these verses to show that slaves are now the owners. They're the givers of life rather than the servants, the receivers of the orders. Every single act of obedience that they perform to their master humanly speaking, is being transformed by God in the moment as an opportunity to showcase the character and gospel of God, the name of God and the doctrine of God. That's what it says in verse 1. Because the slave has received gospel transformation, Jesus is in them. They have received Christ and all the blessings that belong to Christians. Paul therefore wants these slaves to know that they are enabled by gospel grace to go beyond human servitude, to become true servants, just like their heavenly master did. At the end of the day, nobody owns a Christian except for God. And it's to him, ultimately, that they render all of their service. Colossians says, whatever you do, do your work heartily for the Lord, not for men. That's what these slaves are being called to do. And verse 1, by the way, is a command. Regard, New American Standard, ESV, count, King James, consider, NIV. This is an imperative. Regard your master as worthy of all honor. That doesn't mean, is he worthy? It means just consider that he is. Think about him that way. Yes, that guy who is subjugating you in ways that you hate, that you wish were not, consider him worthy of honor. Treat him like that. What a call. George Knight in the New International Greek Testament commentary said, Paul is thus asking them to make a self-conscious evaluation to consider their master worthy of honor. The ruler may not be personally worthy, but he's in a position to be so regarded, says the Lord. All right, kids, I'm going to go to my last point here in just a second. I got an application for you. Kids, I want to ask you a question. Are your parents worthy of your respect all the time? When you're tired, when you want to do a thing that they say you can't? Are your parents worthy of your respect? If the answer is conditional, sometimes yes, sometimes no, then I have something that I should say to you. You have some serious talking to do with God. God gave you your mom. God gave you your dad. He did not make a mistake. 
They are worthy of your respect. Employees, are your supervisors and bosses worthy of you honoring them? Players, what about your coaches? What about the referees, students? What about your teachers? This verse is showing us that God is the one who puts every single human in the right position of life at the right time, and we must honor those who are in authority above us as a means of honoring God who put us in that position. Why? So the name of God and the doctrine that we teach will not be spoken against. Do you see the connection between your conversion to Christ, if you say you're a Christian, and your conduct in life? Paul is saying that our life is meant by God, by God, God to be an apologetic for His character. How will they know God is true? The way you live. How will they know the gospel is true? The way you live. Matthew 5.16 is in view. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Well, that's believing slaves of unbelieving masters. Verse 2 is believing slaves of believing masters. It totally makes sense why this verse has to follow. Verse 2, those who have believers as their masters must not be disrespectful to them because they are brethren, but must serve them all the more because those who partake of the benefit are believers and beloved. So, what's behind this verse? What must have been happening in the church at Ephesus and everywhere else since where Christians are under the authority of other Christians? Answer. The ones under the authority will be tempted to take advantage of the authority figure's Christianity. Do you know what these slaves are doing in verse 2? Yes, you do know. They are serving their masters less because they thought they could get away with laziness because their master might be more lenient on them because he's a Christian, unlike those pagan lost masters. So I got another question for you all. Kids, mom says clean the table, dad says clean the room. Do you do it as well as you can, no matter if your sibling helps you or not? When it's time to wash the dishes, mow the grass, do the thing, whatever the assignment is, do you do as hard or as good a, of work as you can, no matter who else helps or who else watches? Or do you slough off? In every single thing that you do, does someone have to beg you to do it to the best of your ability because you're always cutting corners and trying to find the easy way out? Do you work harder when someone is harsher with you than you would if they were kind and gracious to you? Do you need to be driven by the whip to do your best? Or can you be trusted to do work as hard and well as you can, even if nobody else even knows that you did it, let alone watched you do it? Let me ask you a deeper question. If you knew that the person for whom you were doing work was one of the most privileged people in the history of the world. That is a person who is loved by God. If you knew that you were working for a person that God loves, how would that knowledge affect the quality of the work that you tried to do for them? Instead of taking advantage of their love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, gentleness, and self-control, the fruits of the Holy Spirit in their life, that's what the Holy Spirit in them should look like increasingly toward you. They should be more loving, more joyful, more peaceful, more patient, more good, more kind, so on and so forth. If a person treats you like that, 
You know what a true Christian would do? Seek to honor them, quote, all the more. So kids, if your parents are Christians, and you are also, then prove it. Not by earning your Christianity, but by the ways that you seek to serve them for God's glory. That's the biggest and best sphere, circle, that God has entrusted to you at this point in your life to demonstrate your heart for Christ. More than they're your parents, they're your brother or your sister in Christ, verse 2. They are loved by God, verse 2. If you want to see what a Christian work ethic looks like, I come in two places, I could come in 200. Old Testament and New Testament Joseph. Old Testament Joseph, sold into slavery by his brothers, accused of doing nefarious things that he never did, put in prison for, I think, 17 years. Everywhere he went, in the pit, in Potiphar's house, in the prison, everywhere he went, he sought to serve the Lord as best he could. Tried to be the best prisoner, sweep the floors better than anybody else in the prison. And ultimately, he was serving the Lord, not those people, not those places. Even when his unbelieving brothers came to him and realized that he was now the prince of Egypt, he said to them, what you meant for evil, God meant for good, for the saving of many souls. He didn't hold it against them. That work ethic, everywhere Joseph went, he just made everything better. He worked hard everywhere he went, even when things weren't going his way. New Testament Joseph, I don't mean Jesus' earthly father. I think I could point to him as well. He was a carpenter. But I mean the New Testament, the true and greater Joseph. The Lord Jesus, who also was betrayed by his brethren, was sold for 30 pieces of silver into the hands of evil men and was put in what looked like the place of his death where he would never get out, only to emerge victorious again after his death, through his resurrection, to sit on heaven's throne. Look at him. When you read the Gospels, see if you can start counting up things like this. He did not have time to eat because he was serving other people. He did not have time to sleep because he was serving other people. Read the Gospel of Mark and count the word immediately. How many times can you find that word immediately going here, immediately going there, immediately leaving, immediately coming? Because he was busy working and serving and helping every single person around him. That's a Christian work ethic. The question is not, are you a slave? The question is, who's your master? For whom do you do everything you do? Christian, next time you're tempted to cheat your boss, cheat on your taxes, next time you're tempted to do something to try to look good in the eyes of men rather than the eyes of God, when you're tempted to be lazy, to not work, take a good, long look at the cross of Jesus where he did at least two things relevant to this point in the sermon. 
He died for every single time you've cheated, every single time you have served for men, not for God. He died on the cross to redeem you from all of the times you've tried to make yourself look like something that you're not, all the times you've cheated somebody else, you've stolen from your boss by taking whatever else out of the account or off the time clock when you weren't doing what you should have been doing. Jesus died for that. That's one way he served you. And he served you ultimately all the way to the point of death so that you and I could have life forevermore. And Paul said to Timothy, when you get to church on Sunday, 1 Timothy 2D, teach and preach these principles. This is my job. This was Timothy's job. Deliver the news. Don't rewrite it. God has given every single one of us a hard task. All of us. There's stuff about every single one of our lives that we would change if we were given the opportunity. If I give you a blank parchment and a fresh quill and a new bottle of ink and say, you get to write the script of your life however you want it to look, I assure you that you would not write it exactly like it looks today. You would change something about yourself, your circumstances, your future, your past. But life script is written better than you ever could. And right where you are, right here, right now, you can have the freedom that you think you would have if you could really write the script. It's actually better. God is commanding you in the steps that he's ordered for your life today, now, however old you are, who you live with, where you work, whatever you do, God has written your script and he's put a big command over it. Honor your master, humanly speaking and divine speaking. Do it for this reason. And if you don't care about this, you've got some really big problems. Do it for this reason so that God's name and the gospel truth will be upheld and so that your brothers and sisters in the faith will benefit even more from your labor. My applications are fourfold and rapid fire. Jesus is not calling you to do anything that he hasn't done for you already. You were under a cruel slave master. Satan promises you good and does you bad. He'll lure you into sin and then kick you when you're down. Some of you still live under the tyranny of sin. You've never had the chains broken. There's never been a light that flooded the dungeon and set you free. For those who are not in their sins because they've come to a saving relationship in and for and by Jesus Christ, we know we would have perished in our sin had Jesus not become a slave and a servant for us. He said of himself, I did not come to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. I told you earlier, Romans 15 says he became a servant so that the nations would glorify God for his mercy. The worst, the worst slavery that anybody could ever have is actually a slavery that everybody in this room has had and some still have. Bondage to sin. Shackles stronger and tighter than the most powerful 
metal on earth could forge into a chain. And Romans 6.16 says those chains, quote, will lead you to death. And Christ came and served us and laid his life down for us. You want to talk about somebody being treated like a slave? I know somebody who was whipped for not doing what other men said. I know somebody who bled because he wouldn't bow the knee to false deities. And I know somebody who very willingly and astonishingly beyond what I can understand, let alone say gladly, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. What joy? What was the joy that compelled Jesus to go to the cross? What's good about that? The joy? It's you. It's you. He's happy to have you. He's glad He died for you. He's not sorry that He saved you. He wants you to be free from your shackles of sin more than you want to be free. Number two, your call to spiritual slavery then is an invitation to be like Jesus. And Hebrews 1 says Jesus is the happiest person who's ever lived. He was anointed with the oil of gladness more than all his companions. And I take that cumulatively. More than the total of all the happy people in the world, Jesus has been happier than that. Which is why Jesus said to his disciples, I say these things to you so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be, play Roma, complete, full, to the top. Your call to spiritual slavery is a call to be like Jesus. That's why Paul's favorite phrase for himself, number one favorite way to describe himself, bondservant of Christ. Not under the yoke of sin, not even ultimately under the yoke of my earthly master, but under the happy yoke of Jesus, gentle and lowly. Number three, non-Christian. Now I'm asking you to examine your heart. I know everybody has to ask this question at different points in their life. Am I really a Christian? Am I really a Christian? I'm talking to you. I'm begging you on behalf of God. Don't have two hells. This week I read some terrible, terrible thing. Gut-wrenching, nauseating. Make my stomach churn accounts of human slavery. Atrocities on this soil that would make you throw up if I read them to you. Atrocities in other places of the world, in human slavery. Unfortunately, some were accompanied with pictures and artist renderings. I beg of you, on behalf of God, don't have two hells. Many people have a hard life on this side of eternity. A lot of people have a hard life. I'm asking you not to have two. Living in a fallen world guarantees you're going to have hardship in your life. You will. You would write the story different than God is writing it. That's just normal. All of us experience that. Some have an especially hard life. Slaves, exponentially slow. so. Maybe you would say that all you've ever known your whole life up to today. Jordan, if you only knew, my whole life has been under unbelieving masters. People who just love to make my life miserable. God forbid some of you might be those people. 
just love making other people miserable. Are you going to let an unbelieving master who gave you hell on earth keep you from having eternal bliss in the life to come? Nobody gets two heavens. Jesus didn't have two heavens. Jesus was the man of sorrows, but He came so that you don't have to have two hells either. The last point of application is that your slavery, no matter how arduous, no matter how miserable, no matter how long, no matter how much worse than the next person, your servitude is not going to last forever. Christian, I said earlier, your heart should skip a beat. You should lose a breath when you hear some of the things God has to say about what's coming for you. Picture a slave sitting in the pew of the church at Ephesus. Picture a slave sitting in the pew at the church at Corinth. And Paul writes to the Corinthians, for example, when you leave this life, you're going to rule the angels, 1 Corinthians 6.3. You want to talk about being a master? Listen to Jesus, fellow slaves. The meek are going to inherit the earth. The whole world is going to belong to you one day. You think your master has a little bit of power and control, a little bit of property and influence? One day at your fingertip. You want to go to the glorified Alps? Do it. You want to go to the glorified islands of the South Seas? Do it. You get the whole earth meek, humble, Jesus-loving, obedient subjects. That's why Paul writes things like he meant it. He literally wrote some of these sentences from prison. The sufferings of this present age do not compare with the glory that will be revealed to us. Momentary light affliction, the actual pain, the hard thing, this momentary light affliction, the thing that's hard is the very thing, 2 Corinthians 4.18, that is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. God puts a golden tether between your pain and His heart, and He makes that pain transform into your everlasting joy. What do you think heaven's going to be? In large part, it's going to be an exuberant experience of unending joy because there, you're finally going to be free. You know what it's going to look like? This is what real freedom looks like. This is what you want. You're going to serve Jesus with all your heart. Sinless heart. Everything you ever do will not be for the eye of man, but for the eye of God. And that's going to be your freedom forever. And you can have that right now. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, we ask that you would make us free in Christ. Free. Free. By Jesus who died for us. In Jesus who lives for us, for Jesus who rules and reigns over us and every other master in this lifetime. Oh, give us freedom in Jesus. We pray this for your glory. In his name, amen.